Hello and welcome to, to Cake Watch podcast uh, about Brexit um, with me, Chris Kendall. Um, I'm an EU official Eurocrat, but um, not not here because of that. I'm here in a strictly personal capacity and with nobody else because this is a special, a bonus podcast that we are putting out um, with a transcript, oh, not a transcript, with a recording of a discussion that took place in Nottingham at the end of September. We're doing this for our friends at the European Movement in Nottingham. Uh, they hosted uh, an event, a question time on Brexit at the end of September and uh, had a very high-powered panel having a discussion about where where we're heading next with Brexit. It was very interesting. I've listened to this. It's, it's super interesting. We, we're not going to edit the file at all. We're simply giving you the raw file that, that, that they sent to us and we're, we're using our channel to get this out to our subscribers who we think would... Uh, would be very interested in listening to this. So let me just quickly tell you who's going to be um, on this panel. You've got Ken Clark. I don't need to tell you who Ken Clark is. Tom Brake, um, MP, Liberal Democrat, spokesperson on Brexit. Natalie Bennett, former le- leader of the Green Party. Uh, Femi Oluwole, don't need to tell you who Femi is either, um, but I will, co-founder of our future, our choice. Eloise Todd. Uh, Chief Executive, uh, Best for Britain, um, another great favourite of ours. And John Hess, former BBC political editor for the East Midlands. They have a very interesting discussion about Brexit. It's about an hour and a bit. Um, So, yeah, uh, listen, enjoy. My name is John Hess and I'm delighted to welcome you here to talk Brexit. What a better thing to do on a Friday evening when there are so many distractions. But we've got a fantastic panel. And the questions that you have sent in, you've emailed, uh, hit the button. They touch on all the issues that people have been talking about and will continue to talk about from now until the end of next March. Uh, just to talk you through this evening, I'm a bit like a, an airline pilot. My job is to take off on time. Uh, few delays, but more importantly, my job is to land you safely and to clear the building by nine o'clock. Um, otherwise, UK movement uh, heading to double race. Uh, there will be uh, there will be a BBC News crew arriving at some stage. So if you see a camera and uh, somebody looking vaguely lost and puzzled, that'll be the BBC. Uh, let me introduce your panel. You'll, you'll know them very, very well indeed. Chris Leslie, uh, Labour MP for Nottingham East, and former Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, Chris tweeted this week, and I quote Brexit in any form is a job destroying, poverty increasing, business damaging, trade wrecking, public service cutting disaster, and Labour should not be enabling it. Well, this evening, I. I'm going to try and encourage Chris this evening to be more candid uh, (laughs) on this particular issue. Just a reminder though, Nottingham narrowly voted to leave in the referendum. It was 50.8%. A majority of just over 2,000, 2,000 over the vote to remain. Kenneth Clark, MP for Rushcliffe. Uh, Rushcliffe was one of the 80 or so parliamentary constituencies in England that voted in the referendum to remain in the EU. Rushcliffe voted 50 <laughs> 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 
Man, the post Rushcliffe hand. Am I recording my constituents? <laughs> Rushcliffe voted 57.6% to stay. Um, Ken, as you know, is a former cabinet minister, health, education, home office, justice, and the treasury. And he knows more than most how government works. And sometimes how it doesn't. <laughs> so, interesting Ken's observations on what's happening in government at the moment. Natalie Bennett, a former journalist, blogger, leader of the Green Party of England and Wales from 2012 to 2016. Uh, Natalie told the Huffington Post this summer of the need for a second referendum. And I quote Natalie, politicians change direction all of the time. There's a reason why the U in U-turn is a much-used headline phrase. If politicians have that right, then people must have that right too. Tom is a Liberal Democrat, the MP for Carl Shelton and Wallington in South London, and the party's speaker on all things Brexit and European. Now, on the growing demands for a second referendum, he told the Liberal Democrat conference the other week that his party had, and I quote, taken the flak for a policy which was on the fringes two years ago and is now the mainstream. Eloise Todd knows all about campaigning uh, and the increasing noise for a second vote. She runs a campaign group that's wanting one for sure. Uh, she is the chief executive of Best for Britain. She's also on the board of the Joe Cox Foundation that was set up, as you probably know, to promote the issues that Joe Cox cared about before her brutal murder, days before the EU <coughs> referendum. And Eloise <coughs> is a Hull City supporter. Tigers. <laughs> Not many cheers for the Tigers. <laughs> try this one. Uh, she was brought up in the East Yorkshire constituency where her MP was one David Davis. <laughs> and they're predictable too. <laughs> also on the panel, Femi Oluwai Lu, uh, is the co-founder of our future on young people and the social and economic inequalities facing young people in the UK and worldwide. Um, he got his law degree studying law and French at the University of Nottingham. So, voila! We're going to go straight into the first question. Uh, so those people who have already forwarded their questions uh, are calling on you and the two, two of my colleagues who have got the microphones, if you can put your hands up and then we'll find you as quick as possible. And as the evening progresses, I'll try and involve as many of you as possible. So our first question comes from Jason Billin. Where's Jason? Okay, thank you, Jason. Uh, what I'm going to do, is, uh, I'm going to hear from all six panellists to start with, 
uh, so they get the opportunity to answer the question directly, uh, precisely. Right. Oh. <clears throat> We're going to have to pass this microphone between us. So, uh, um, now, the wonderful thing about the British Constitution, there aren't that many wonderful things about it, um, but one of the benefits, the silver linings, I suppose, is that Parliament is sovereign. And unlike in many other countries where you have uh, Supreme Courts or uh, other uh, arrangements which have a kind of quasi-judicial or a legislative uh, stage in the process, actually, if Parliament wants to do something, it can do it. And the reason I mention that is that this question will often come up. Oh, it's too late, it's impossible, nothing can be done. First of all, they say um, there isn't enough time. One thing that might happen is maybe the Prime Minister drags her, her feet and actually wants to run the clock out towards March uh, 2019 and almost make it so that it's just impossible, Parliament, sorry, no way of going back to the, to the people. But um, just because the government thinks something or concludes something, just because the Prime Minister believes it, it doesn't actually mean that Parliament, members of Parliament, cannot override that. We can, as MPs. And it's really, really important people bear that in mind. Because the only thing constraining us as members of Parliament sometimes are the whips in our party political system, and often the political parties are very reluctant to do certain things. But if there is enough public pressure, Parliament can basically do what it wants and can do it very quickly. So, for instance, before the last general election, uh, there were about uh, a dozen bills before Parliament that were outstanding. Uh, they didn't take three months to get through Parliament. They didn't take three weeks to get through Parliament. They rushed those through in three days flat. So if Parliament wants to do something, it can do it. Now, obviously, if the Prime Minister has a deal, she's going to come back and make this such a fantastic triumph. Isn't this miraculous? You know, we can avoid the tragedy of an all that catastrophe of a no deal, which, interestingly, they're almost trying to talk up right now. And they also are starting to characterise it. I don't know if you've noticed this. They're characterising it almost like as a Canada deal. Super Canada, Boris Johnson called it today. We all like Canada, don't we? What's wrong with Canada? Canada's a lovely place. Maple syrup, you know. <laughs> lo lovely place. Liberal government. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, it, a free trade agreement which is actually much more to do, much more um, in parallel with the Mexico deal that, that it has with the European Union, or Colombia's deal with the European Union, or Algeria's deal with the European Union. This is, a, this is the sort of relationship that the Prime Minister may want <coughs> in the future. I, I don't want to steer your thunder, Chris, but I think this whole area we're coming up, I just want to stick specifically we can, to... The point is, is we can do it. Yes, there is yeah. time to do it. And the People's Vote on their website have published uh, just uh, ten days ago a uh, six routes to a People's Vote referendum. Okay. And so I'd uh, advise you to have a look at that. There's okay. lots of different ways of achieving it. Let me bring in uh, Natalie Bennett. Okay. Well, I think one of the first things we need to do when we're talking and campaigning is acknowledge that the People's Vote is not an easy way forward. But there is no easy way forward from where we are now. We are in a right mess. It's like one of those jokes that start, well, you know, giving directions. Well, I wouldn't start from here. But given that's where we are, it's where we have to start from. 
And I don't think we can do it by the 29th of March, but I think if we are set up, have called a referendum, it's all the framework is there. I spend quite a lot of time with European Greens in continental Europe in Brussels. I've just come back from a meeting in Ghent and I'm talking to MEPs. And I think it's very clear that Europe will allow us an extension if we're about to go to a democratic decision. However, they're going to be pushing very, very hard to have it all sorted out before the scheduled European elections in May, at the end of May. So one of the messages that I hope that all of the people, and I get the feeling this is a, uh, a, an audience that might just vote in favour of a people's vote, judging from the reactions thus far. Um, if you want a people's vote, we have to make sure we're not only campaigning for a people's vote, but campaigning to win the people's vote. Now, the Remain campaign was absolutely dreadful last time. Uh, very late in the day, uh, I was in the um, in Lord's Cricket Ground with David Cameron, and there was me on one side and Harriet Harman on the other, both telling him how terribly he was doing. <laughs> we could see it coming in some ways. But we need a different kind of Remain campaign this time. It actually has to be a people's campaign. It has to be grassroots and local, and it has to be you know, getting organised now. And I know that's happening here in Nottingham. I was at a meeting in Leeds a couple of weeks ago and someone popped their hand up and said, you know, I'm best for Bolton and we're three weeks old. And great. We need it in every town and village. I was talking to an 18-year-old from Morton, which is this little village in North Yorkshire, and he was talking about getting set up there, having a local campaign. We need people out on stalls talking now, getting it all, because it just could happen really, really fast. And we can't start organising on the day it's called. We need to organise the campaign to win the people's vote and organise it now. Okay, thank you, Natalie. Surely there has to be a general election before there's legislation for a second referendum. Uh, well, I, I think there, there is a limited prospect of there being a general election because, of course, it would require the Prime Minister, in effect, to call it. And given her experience uh, last year, <laughs> uh, I suspect she's very, very reluctant to, to do anything of the sort. So I think a, a people's vote is more likely. But uh, the question was quite concrete, and that is, is there time? And I think we have already reached the point where actually we, we will need to extend Article 50. Because one thing that we can't afford to do, I think if we, if we want to legislate for this, for instance, is to ram it through. Because, of course, then we will be attacked for trying to uh, short-circuit the process to our advantage. So, if you look at the timescales involved, the Electoral Commission has, uh, depending on who you believe, between 10 and 12 weeks to consider the question. So you've got to build in 10 to 12 weeks for them to consider the question. And then, of course, the new referendum campaign uh, just over two years ago was a campaign that lasted 10 weeks. So yes, we could have a shorter campaign, but I think realistically we're probably going to have to have roughly the same length of campaign again, because otherwise we'll be accused of trying to run through the process. So already with those two things, you've got 20 weeks. And that's before the time that's involved in actually drafting the legislation. Now, maybe we could simply pick up uh, the, the referendum acts from the last time round, 
However, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because firstly, we don't want this to be seen as the same referendum as two years ago. And equally, because in that referendum act, there were some major problems with it. So for instance, there was nothing in terms of teeth that could stop people making outrageous claims during the course of the campaign. We want to have that so that this campaign was one that was fought on a fair, it's never going to be a completely fairer basis, but fairer than the one that was carried out two years ago. And I'd just like to conclude by saying that I think the, the European Union will agree. They'll agree if it's to uh, facilitate a, uh, a referendum, but as Natalie said, they have a major uh, sort of obstacle in the way of this, or a, in effect a, a cliff edge for them, which is the European Parliament elections taking place, if they were to take place here, they'd be on the 23rd of May, Thursday, or on Sunday on the 26th of May. The European Union, are, for obvious reasons, are not keen for us to be having a referendum after the European elections because one of the things they've already done is reallocate the seats that we currently hold, where they've given half of them, uh, half, dish out half of them, and they're holding back half of them for new countries that are going to join. So it, they, they will help us. But I think any, anything that looks at something going beyond the European Parliament elections, whilst it's probably theoretically possible, and they might be willing to bend over backwards, it will clearly cause some major problems for them, and then we'll play into a bit of an agenda around Europe about the European Union trying to force the hand of nations, you can think of populist movements around Europe, who might latch onto this and, and try to capitalise it on a very, in a very negative way. Thank you, John. You don't believe in referendum, do you? No, I think in a absurd way of running a modern, sophisticated country in today's globalised world, particularly on such complex subjects, which cover, in this case, uh, and all the entirety of our trade relationships, our economic relationships with the rest of the world, flows of investment. Uh, they cover a great deal of our security policy. They cover a great deal of our environmental policy. And I have a silly opinion poll in which you give people a simple answer to, to yes to no, in effect, it was leave, remain, and then have a disgraceful, ridiculous <coughs> campaign where the national media reported no serious arguments on either side and the leading figures piled in with daft arguments on both sides. Uh, I, I, I typically don't buy this religious significance uh, that is uh, now attached to it, but uh, that makes me an eccentric because most pro-Europeans <laughs> are putting all their faith in a people's vote, which I probably would support if I despaired of any other way of stopping the present lunacy, although it would be somewhat... <laughs> Heaven knows who would win it, and I'm quite sure the campaign, even the serious campaign, would not be about the complexities of the new agreements that we'd have with the European Union, that's for sure. So we'd be back to our millions of Turks coming here and all this kind of thing. Uh, but, so I, I, I agree with Chris, it all depends what happens in Parliament, and that is proving totally unpredictable in this phase. Referendums are designed to shove Parliament and political parties out of the way. That's what they're for. You only demand a referendum if you don't think you're ever going to get a parliamentary majority. Which is why Jimmy Goldsmith started demanding one, this referendum party. They never thought they were going to win, and they wouldn't have taken any notice of it if they lost. Uh, but it, now they've won, it has had that effect. Part of this present parliament is paralysed. 
Uh, both political parties are shattered on the subject. They're deeply, deeply divided with the full range of opinions on both sides. Uh, and I won't go on, but it, 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 that just you know, warms my theme of how mad this is. <laughs> um, but it does, mean, it, it does mean that it, it's difficult to predict what will happen in practically everything we get asked. There's certainly no time for a straightforward agreement, setting up a referendum, holding a referendum <coughs> before March of this year. That is ridiculous. The, 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 the agreement we will get... Uh, is on the withdrawal agreement, probably. There's two stages. Uh, if we can actually sort out the Irish border, we, we've, got, we've got to have a withdrawal agreement. And that's the big issue, which we've got to reach, if possible, before Christmas. It'll be difficult. Once we've got the withdrawal agreement, and I hope we've started negotiating the big agreement, we'll then go on to the much bigger agreement. I mean... It is mad to leave uh, the biggest free trade area in today's globalised world. It is quite mad to reduce our political influence by no longer being one of the leading players in this big European bloc, trying to hold its own against US, China, Russia, keep our influence, our values alive. Uh, but if you are doing it, it's highly complex. It will take years to sort everything out before you have a final agreement. For that reason, I think... Parliament may be persuaded. The present, I, I vote with Chris and Tom all the time. But you're not going to get the present Parliament uh, to vote for a referendum. Uh, and yet you're not, you're not going to get... That, 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 I give up on them. We nearly won uh, once. We won, we won on a meaningful vote in Parliament once. Uh, but but, but we, we, nearly, we nearly won on a customs union. Five Labour members rescued the government. They're five hardline Brexiteers. Uh, and, and I think we had a majority of three against us, Chris, eh? as I recall. But, but Parliament will have to face up the fact that, that all you'll have before Christmas is the merest outline of what the ultimate relationship will be. We'll get all those cliché little slogans about close and warm relationship, not being a third country like any other country, all the usual rubbish, because they'll have to flannel through it. Uh, and there won't be very much to vote on. Uh, but you will need to have a, an interim period. The Europeans would push back Article 50 by a bit, which might help. They're going to have to if we can't sort out the Irish border and we can't get a withdrawal agreement. The most important thing is the interim period. At the moment, we have till December 2020 within which we've largely agreed we're going to largely stay as we are. Now, one of my main aims, try and get Parliament to pick itself up to the floor and this pathetic Parliament take the control which it could, because two-thirds of members of Parliament think we should, from all parties, think we should stay in the European Union. It's quite the most pathetic Parliament I've ever been in. <laughs> completely cowed by this referendum. They all promised it, you know. So when I vote against leaving your atom, I'm told my masters, the people, have told us to leave your atom. I've never heard rubbish in all my life. <laughs> most of my constituents don't actually follow the policy on nuclear safeguarding very closely. Um, not being arrogant and saying quite a lot, don't really know what your atom does. But this, this keeps going on. But, but an interim period, I, I would like us to agree that we keep the status quo. 
we're going to have to leave in March the political institutions, I regret to say. I don't see how we stop that. So we won't have members of the European Parliament, we won't go to councils and so on. But at least for trade and investment, stay as we are, <coughs> single market, customs union, present rules. Don't start changing until you have agreed, certainly and in detail, exactly what you're changing to. It applies in any way you like. Now, during that period, if we can't get Parliament to come back to its senses, I'd probably, if Chris and Anna and all these people tell me I've got to vote for a people's vote, I'd probably vote for a people's <laughs> vote to try and rescue it. And it will be a total gamble. I dread a people's vote. It'll be as silly as last time. Uh, half the public are not following any of these details. They've lost interest. They're bored with Brexit. They're fed up with all the political class because they can't understand why we're wasting time still talking about all these things we've never heard of. Uh, and I dread to think. But you never know. It's always a gamble, a referendum. You spin a coin this time, you might win it. But before that, I have hopes that Parliament will take back control, have an interim period, who knows? Okay. Continuing membership of the single market and the customs union for a few years okay. might get everybody to start okay. arming okay. down, okay. coming back to Sandy. Well, <laughs> I have a lot of sympathy for what Ken has said, and I think in normal times you would all hope when we started Best for Britain. The idea was that we would say, actually, there is, a, there is some kind of mandate for the government to negotiate, to start negotiating, but the government doesn't have a mandate to sign off the deal. There's a reason why there's a two-year process that has to be signed off by Parliament and indeed the European Parliament and all the leaders. So let's look at what they bring back, and if it's not as good as what we have, then Parliament should do the right thing. Over the course of time, it's become clear that the special kind of what did you say, kind of religious nature that um, the 2016 vote is held in, means that it, it's quite difficult to see Parliament doing that, so it feels necessary that this goes back to the people. But of course, it's not the same question. This is the first time that people have started to understand what Brexit might actually mean, and perhaps the only silver lining to the cloud of Brexit is that we've had the debate that, frankly, we should have had during the 2016-16 referendum campaign. So, I think that you know, it doesn't have to be a silly poll. It can be a real debate in this country where, frankly, there are more campaign rules that are stringent, as Tom was talking about. I think we'd have to see a lot of changes, particularly on the digital side, and I say that as someone who is largely running the campaign um, digitally. And um, we would also need to see uh, sanctions for people just frankly peddling lies. I have no idea why a lot of those things weren't kind of taken immediately after the referendum and people held to account for using public money in a campaign to spread lies. I mean, it's absolutely insane. So we have to make sure that none of those things happen. But if I can just refer back to the original question about whether we have time. We do have time because the Europeans have told us so. Um, we know that um, Parliament hopefully will do the right thing. But really, in order to get there, what we need is you. And we need, we're running out of time to get those polls up. 
where we've been consistently at about 53% in favour of, of staying in the EU. So let's remember, right now, a majority of people in this country want to stay in the EU, but we need our MPs to feel it more. They need to get the letters, they need to get the visits, and it needs to be people other than us that they might have seen quite a lot already. It needs to be people that they're surprised to see. So your role in all of this is absolutely crucial. And when that poll starts going up towards 54%, 55%, then people will start to see that this is a one-way street. Those polls have not been in favour of leaving the European Union for one year and a half. And frankly, if we do not get the chance for people's vote, it would be anti-democratic. Thank you. Uh, well, quite simply, I don't see any other option. I mean, the reason why we keep hearing about the Northern Irish border is because that's the one thing that simply can't be solved. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement is basically, a, it allows for a balance between Northern Ireland being part of the UK or part of the United Ireland. That's pretty much the main disagreement, that's what their entire political system over there is based around. Now, Brexit automatically takes Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK and puts in a completely different legal jurisdiction to the rest of the island of Ireland. You've already messed up the Good Friday Agreement a bit, but you have three options. Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK stays within the rules of the EU, but then the only problem is that Brexit means we've now lost control. We have a dominant position in influencing the rules of the EU as an EU member, but if we're still following the rules of the EU, but we no longer take part in the institutions, we've actually lost control in that. I feel like I remember people talking about taking it back. And so that's, that's option one. Or you have Northern Ireland staying in the single market, staying in the rules of the EU, and the rest of the UK doesn't, but that means you basically split up the UK. Not ideal, because you've literally destroyed the United Kingdom. Um, or Northern Ireland doesn't stay within the rules of the EU, but then that means that products that are legal on one side of the border are no longer legal on the other. Now, out of basic rules of consumer protection. If we start importing beef from places that don't meet the rules of the EU, then to protect EU consumers, the EU then has to start checking lorries across between the two. And therefore, that creates a border in the Ireland, uh, across Ireland. That disrupts the Good Friday Agreement. So you have three options. Destroy the Good Friday Agreement, it's been responsible for 20 years of relative, relative peace and basically stop, terror, stop significant amounts of terrorism. Uh, disunite the United Kingdom, or leave us having less control than EU members after people wanted more control. Those are the three options from Brexit. None of those are going to be, get parliamentary approval, none of those are going to get approval of the public, and they definitely won't be agreed by the EU. So there is no possible way of getting a good deal. Now, if that's what we end up with by November, the only way out of no deal is a people's vote. That's the only way out. And so you should, you should have some confidence and, and tell your MP that no deal is completely unacceptable. And so, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I think we have time, and especially as... The, on the EU side, they have repeated several times that they want us to stay. In fact, Donald Tusk, the, primary, the uh, head of the European Council, he was basically crying on TV. So, he wants us to stay. Where's Steve? Can't see a hand in the air. If he's not here, I will ask his question for him, because it's uh, very topical. Uh, we've heard from all six panellists, and we're already a quarter of the way through. So I'm going to try and move things along. Uh, if the panel 
and we would make I'm not going to invite all of them to respond to each individual question in order to try and get through as, as many issues as possible. But I'll, I'll ask this one on behalf of Steve, um, given the Labour Party conference um, this week. Jeremy Corbyn has offered to work with Theresa May to deliver a Brexit deal. Um, and he gets on. Um, I'll just leave that in the air. Chris Leslie, is there a deal to be done between Jeremy Corbyn and the Prime Minister on Brexit? Um, well, I mean, you can accuse me of many things, <laughs> but being able to uh, speak on behalf of Jeremy Corbyn isn't necessarily. <laughs> um, I hope that the Labour Party will look um, at the best interests of the country first. The things that worry me about Brexit are primarily jobs, because whatever deal you do, even if it is, I mean, if you're going to have to have a deal, the, the least worst is a sort of EEA, EFTA, single market customs union deal. And, you know, if you're going to take a, a glass three quarters full, well, that, so, so be it. But even in that scenario, the Treasury themselves, the government's own civil servants, are predicting a reduction in the level of growth over the next decade. And of course, what happens when you have less business activity because of friction and so forth, less revenues come into the Exchequer, and because we know money doesn't grow on trees, at least I hope we know that money doesn't grow on trees, we have less then to invest in our schools, in our hospitals, our public services. And a lot of people have had enough of austerity in recent times, and I predict a decade or more of austerity to come if we end up with a Brexit in any form. It could be a lot worse than that. And so I've been pushing the Labour Party, for goodness sake, support EEA, support Customs Union. It took us a lot of rebellions in the House of Parliament. This time last year, rebellion after rebellion, we were told, don't vote for the Customs Union. We pushed and we pushed. Eventually, we got Labour into a Customs Union position. We, we tried in the, before the summer, European Economic Area. We pushed and we pushed. We got it through the House of Lords in the face of opposition from the front bench Labour and front bench Conservatives. We got it through the House of Lords. We couldn't get it through um, the House of Commons uh, because, of, because of the Labour front bench position. So many of us MPs have been trying for a long time to do this. I hope that the Labour Party uh, will support a people's vote. That was certainly the wish of 150 constituents of Labour parties at, at a conference that we just had. We've ended up with a composite that says, if a general election isn't possible, then maybe a people's vote. A little bit of a row going on about whether that would have remained or not. So we need all the Labour Party voices and muscle possibly saying we demand the people's vote, we demand that Remain should be on the, the table for that. And, you know, many of us MPs are under a lot of pressure to toe the line, to put our heads down, to, to stop rocking the boat. Um, I don't need to tell you, some of you will know there's another meeting going on about 200 metres away from here tonight, which is uh, censuring me tonight for not taking the front bench view. I actually don't care <laughs> what the hell happens to me in the future. Deselection, do what you like. This is my duty to protect the country, to protect my constituents from the harm that is going to happen. And I will work across the parties. You can accuse me of, be, of doing whatever you like, but there is a majority in Parliament to do the right thing. And I am determined I am going to help find it.
I mean, to be fair, I mean, the, if the, the three MPs you've got here uh, agree with each other, we keep voting with each other, uh, and, you know, left of us, uh, we would be, I just agree with what you said, we are trying to mobilise the pro-European majority in Parliament, but, uh, and I'm not disheartened yet, so I think we should carry on, but Jeremy's one of the problems. I, I congratulate Jeremy. I congratulate the pro-European Labour Members of Parliament in moving Jeremy as far as they have. I never thought they would. Jeremy Corbyn is as deep-dyed a Eurosceptic as John Redwood and Jacob Rees Mogg. He hates the institution. He always has. I like him as a bloke. He's naively sincere. He, he, he has been voting against Britain's membership of the European Union for the last 30 years and he's been a colleague of mine. His reasons are rather different from John Redwood's, but his conclusions are just as firm. So it was very good tactics to say that and they did get him. I mean, Chris will say I'm wrong because he actually got a Labour three-line whip in favour of amendments to take keepers in a customs union, which I never thought you'd get Corbyn on side. His view of customs union may be a bit different to ours, I think. But, but the, 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 it, the, in the end, the vote on the agreement is, is the key. We could have a catastrophic crisis from everybody's point of view in the next six months when it comes up. At the moment, the big question in Parliament is can the government get a majority for any agreement at all, good, bad or indifferent? Uh, Jeremy and the leadership of the Labour Party are determined to vote against any agreement Theresa produces. The hardline Brexiteers are 99% certain to vote against any agreement she produces. Now, if she were to produce a reasonable agreement, and that would put us all on the spot. Getting a majority for that in Parliament would depend on cross-party voting. I'll just illustrate what I mean. We only got in to the European community, this is my only going back to history of the entire evening, don't worry. But in 1972, the Conservative Party was divided. All parties have always been divided. Uh, on, on Europe. The Liberals have had some Eurosceptics in my time. Uh, and and the, the Enoch Powell and what was then the Imperial Wing of my party uh, <laughs> against it, about, about 40, 40 of them. We got the European Communities Bill through with Labour MPs, Jenkinsites, pro-Europeans, voting with us. Now, the, what we've got to try and do is get the bloc pro-European Labour, pro-European Conservative, and I think the current Liberals are unanimous, and the Scott Nats are very valuable, they're pretty well entirely on side, all to vote the same way. The Labour Party are going to have to vote against a three-line whip, the pro-Europeans, possibly. They're terribly pleased when I vote against the three-line whip. I say to some of them, the time will come, you wait till you. <laughs> Chris is cheery about his reselection and all this, but I very much hope he survives. It's outrageous being put under this pressure. 
But that's, that's not true of most backbenchers on both sides. Half the Labour MPs are terrified of momentum and half my colleagues are terrified of their uh, rather reactionary constituency associations. So the, the test will come, firstly, when we get an agreement, if we can somehow put pressure on to get a seriously acceptable agreement, can, the same question, can we mobilise? Now, if, if we're in simply a deadlock where nobody can get majority for anything, I don't know what happens. No, I don't. Except, well, I do. It means no deal. And nobody wants it. No sensible person on either side of the channel wants no deal. But getting there by accident <coughs> could be a very real risk if this parliamentary crisis goes completely wrong. Okay. Uh, somebody said they wanted no deal. Who was that? Can you just explain why you want a no deal? I'll well, get the panel to, to respond. Just tell us uh, who you are and where you come from. Um, I'm Joe. Uh, yeah, I come from Nottingham. Um, I simply want a no deal because I want clarification on the issue of democracy. And I think, from the point of view of clarifying democracy, there was a decision made. And until you follow through that decision on the leaving Europe, you won't get the clarification of what that relationship that we then want to build with Europe is about. So I think it's very kind of well for you to part to say referendum didn't mean very much. When you've had 20, 30 years of people feeling more and more removed from politics, and my interest was somebody passionate about politics, getting interested. You can sit hard all the time voting, and so when there's a very clear question put to people, and you've had the opportunity to have an opinion about it, and you, 75% of MPs, then choose to disregard it, I find that very objectionable. You're then, because of me, not because George is there as a member of parliament, you're accountable to the electorate. And I think when the question is what next, I think we need a serious discussion about democracy and what it means. But I think we have misunderstood, we've lost some key aspects. It's about taking risks, it's about giving, it's about trust, it's about good faith. And I think you're losing that. Parliamentarians, pro European parliamentarians, have had getting up for 30 years to persuade the British electorate that membership of the EU is a good thing. Uh, and that hasn't been recognised, even with the Brexit result. Well, uh, I agree. I think, unfortunately, yes, we have had 30 or 40 years to, uh, to, to, to set out what the European Union does, what, it, uh, what the advantages of it are. But I'm afraid that what has happened for the last 30 or 40 years is that successive governments of all colours, when they have wanted a scapegoat, uh, to blame for something that's happened uh, at a domestic level. They have often aimed uh, the kick at the European Union because it's a good way of, of uh, shifting the blame onto someone else. So I think that, I mean, the idea that, that no deal would be something that, that would be good for the country, well, I think that the people do need to read uh, the technical notes that the government are producing at the moment, which set out what the consequences of no deal would be. And that is uh, 15 mile tailbacks at Dover. Uh, that is, we already have the Secretary of State for Health, so the government minister, telling the pharmaceutical companies that they have got to stockpile medicines 
because they're not confident that in a no-deal scenario the medicines that we import from the European Union to go into the NHS will actually be available. So I, I am not in favour of no-deal or minimising the consequences of it. I suppose the final thing I would say <coughs> is this question about whether Members of Parliament are delegates or representatives. In other words, whether as Members of Parliament, if uh, in fact my constituency is slight majority voted to leave whether that automatically means that I have to adopt that position. Well, as a, someone who believes in the European Union, for the last 30 years I have campaigned on the basis that we are better off in the EU than being out of it. And I, like Chris and like Ken and others on the panel, believe that we are going to be very severely hurt as a result of leaving the European Union, economically, diplomatically, from a security point of view, uh, from, a, from a, a military point of view, and I think it would be irresponsible of me to turn around after 30 or 40 years and say, well, actually, all of those things that I held to be true, I believe to be true, and continue to believe to be true, I'm now going to put them aside, and I'm going to work to deliver something that I think is going to cause the country damage. I don't think that's my responsibility as a Member of Parliament. To the next question. Tom Clement. Is Tom Clement here? Right, we're coming to you next. <laughs> okay, well, I want to start off by saying that, Joe, I agree with a lot of what you just said, in that I think the vote in 16 was a result of the fact that Britain, I used to say that Britain had a broken democracy, but actually I've evolved to a point where I say Britain is not a democracy. In the 2017 election, 68% of votes didn't count. And I think we have to acknowledge that there's real problems with Westminster, and those need to be addressed. We need a fair voting system, and we need genuine devolution of power to the regions. Just up the road from here, Lancashire said no to fracking, and Westminster just said no, we're just going to ignore you, and that has to stop. So. What you're addressing, the lack of democracy, you're getting right to the core of things. But I would say the only democratically way forward from where we are now is the people's vote. Because in 16, we set out a direction of travel. It's like saying we're in Sheffield, drive north. But there was no destination specified. And if you drive north from Sheffield, depending on your heading and your distance, you get to Leeds or you get to John O'Groats. Those are two very different places. And as we've been hearing from Ken, you know, there is no clear picture, there's probably no voting parliament on any destination. So what we have to do is go back to the people. Now here's where I disagree with Ken, because I believe in referendums. I believe in the wisdom of crowds. I trust democracy. And one of the things about the 16 vote was everyone's vote counted the same in that referendum, which is nothing like true in our elections. But what I would say is, people who are campaigning for a people's vote don't feel defensive, say loudly, clearly, the only democratic way forward is to go to the people. That is the only way forward. But what I just want to briefly say is reacting to what Chris and Tom have said. 
I'm afraid we've just been hearing a lot of what were the failed arguments from 2016. I think you're right, Chris, about the economic impacts, but people do not believe economists anymore. People have not believed economists since 2006. And people don't believe, you know, Michael Gove was on to something, much as I very much don't agree with Michael Gove on much, but he was picking up the trend of public opinion when he said, you know, people are fed up with experts. What I would urge everyone to do is be looking at the arguments that weren't made in 16. Let's celebrate free movement of people. It enriches everybody's lives. And let's celebrate the protections, environmental protections, workers' rights protections, human rights protections, that people fought for and won. You think back to the neonicotinoid pesticides killing the bees. More than three million Europeans, many of them British, signed the petition and won the ban. Let's work with the people of Europe to build and enhance those things and celebrate what's been achieved and what can be achieved. Thomas' question next, um, I'll put it to Eloise and Femi, but I want to also stand by Kieran Solanke. Where's Kieran? Over there. Right, because yours is a similar related question, so Tom, you try away first. Thanks for your questions, Roger. Yeah, um, my question is, do you think that a Remain vote in a second referendum would create a rise in right-wing nationalism and basically create more divisions in society? Okay. The thing is, people often say that um, we, we can't have any sort of questioning of Brexit, or we can't uh, put any sort of safeguards on it, because what if the right wing um, want to do more, or what if they, what if they are upset? And regarding the right wing specifically, not peak Brexit voters, but regarding the right wing specifically, um, some of you know the poem, uh, first they came for the socialists, and I said nothing because I wasn't a socialist, and they came for the... Um, Catholics, they said nothing because I wasn't a Catholic, and then they came for me and there was no one else to, to speak up for me. The right wing won't stop with Brexit. First it's EU citizens, then it's, gonna be, then it's Muslims, then it's, then it's whatever, and then it's whatever. We, the response to the right wing is not to simply do what they ask. The, point, the response to the right wing is to create unity and work, and work, work together to promote unity in the exact opposite of the right wing. We have to get out of this whole idea of, of leave remain as, as to bringing this back to 2016. Uh, you mentioned before about democratic clarity. That's precisely what we want. That's precisely what we want. I often um, use the example of the Good Friday Agreement. When the Good Friday Agreement was signed, now that is a major agreement that is crucial to the very politics and integrity of Northern Ireland. They had a referendum where every single voter in, the, in the Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland received a copy of the Good Friday Agreement before they voted. So they got to see the deal that they were signing before they signed it. That's what we're asking for here. That's democratic clarity. That's informed consent. That people should actually, I mean, your verse is saying, we want you to sign this deal. We'll, we'll tell you the terms later. That's literally what Brexit is asking for us right now. And regarding uh, what we know about the EU, the reason why I got involved in this whole thing back in 2016 is because having studied law, having studied EU law, <coughs> I saw David Cameron trying to tell us, you need the single market, all that project fair stuff, 
without once, in five months, telling us what is the single market. Even right now, if you ask most people, on both sides of this debate, they will tell you the single market is about free trade and free movement of people. No. <laughs> the, sing the single market, I have used the example, imagine if you wanted to sell your products, beer, whatever, to 28 countries, including your own. But those 28 different countries have 28 different rules. You'd have to manufacture, market, and package your product in 28 different ways. Your costs would go through the roof. So, the EU means you make rules together. That means you only need to make one version of your product and it's legal across the board. And if the EU hasn't made a rule, then as long as it meets the rules of your home country, okay, it's legal everywhere. That means you can sell your product cheaper. That means costs are cheaper. That means supermarket prices are lower. That makes life better for you. Now, I just explained this in the market in 30 seconds. He had five months. <laughs> are you kidding me? And so that, and that's the point. We, we were never made, it was never made clear to us the benefits of making rules together in that European cooperation and how it actually improves the lives of people here. I mean, you keep hearing about the single market and nobody's explaining what it is. In the Northeast, when the areas are struggling to leave, that they voted there are 27,000 jobs there that are based in a Nissan factory in Sunderland. And those not that factory sends 75% of its cars to mainland Europe. Now, the reason why that factory is there is because we're in the single market. Because every product that's made in the UK is automatically legal across Europe. So why would that factory stay in a place knowing that 75% of its cars go to a completely different legal jurisdiction? Those 27,000 jobs in an area that voted heavily to leave are now at risk. I often use the phrase, don't be angry at record voters, be angry for them. So to ask the question, could it, we see, arise in right-wing nationalism or has that happened already? People will be a lot angrier if they see their jobs go when they, yeah, after they okay. were promised that things would get better. Okay, Eloise. Yeah, I think that's the main point. We know that fascism, extreme behaviour gets worse when the economy is in decline. And as Chris said earlier, the government's own figures um, show that under every Brexit scenario we'd be worse off. So I'd be more worried about if Brexit goes ahead, where would we end up then? And I think that there's a really dangerous um, path ahead, which is this idea of a kind of the sleeping pill of a soft Brexit, that, you know, we get across that 29th of March line legally, but there's this kind of anaesthetic to take us through where we lose a bit of control, where things are a little bit steady for a while, but at some point people realise that not only did we not take back control, we lost it completely. And then how angry will people feel? And then if there also is an economic impact, how will people react then? So this isn't about project fear, it's about having that informed consent that Femi spoke about and that Dr. Philip B speaks about, and that Dr. Sarah Wollaston speaks about. Because if you go into surgery, you don't say, I don't really mind if it's my little toe or my leg. You'd rather kind of know. Um, that actually happened to me, uh, where I didn't know what they were going to take out. But anyway, that's probably not the I had to ask them what they took when I came out. Anyway. Um, yeah, so don't be in that position. Like, being in that position is very scary. Luckily, it was only a penicillin. Um, so informed consent is hugely, hugely important. And I think when we talk about this democratic kind of fix that we're in, this, oh, what do we do? Because there was a vote. There was a vote that I, I actually agree that, that the Article 50 um, negotiations had to start because there was a mandate. It was slim. 
but it was a mandate to kick off the negotiations. It's not what I wanted to see, but only because there's a two-year process and there's a, there's a decision at the end that Parliament is sovereign and has to take. The Europeans have to do the same thing. And that's what's important here, that we did not leave the EU on the 23rd of June 2016. We did not decide what kind of Brexit that we would go for the day that she kicked off negotiations. Um, and so we must have the opportunity to say to people, here's the deal that the government's negotiated, and by the way, here's some information about the powers that we have right now, about all the vetoes we have, about all the things that, that happen for us. You know, and it is about arguing it differently. Femi's brilliant description of the 30-second single market, also what would we get if we started trading with the US? Does anybody know that American clinging film has a carcinogenic uh, chemical in it? That's the kind of thing that EU um, regulation helps and protects us from. There's a, an amazing network that, that, keep, that gets dangerous toys off the shelf within minutes across Europe because there's these networks and these things that protect our kids. Things that people don't know about and talk about because it's all single market customs union. We've got to tell people about the home products, about toys, about chemicals, about all these things that Europe's doing all the time to protect us. And, and what I would say is... Can I bring you back to the question? Yeah. Are we going to see a rise in, in far-right nationalism? I think that really depends on how we uh, conduct the process of a referendum. And what we want to see is... Sorry, people's vote, illegal use of the R word. Um, uh, what we need to do is learn lessons from places like Ireland, with, where they debated and got to a conclusion on something as sensitive in a Catholic country as abortion. And you had citizens' assemblies, you had informed debates about this in a way that the whole country took on a process. And this is why we might want to extend Article 50 a little bit longer so we can have not just a rushed kind of tactical strike to get the right result or the result that we want, but to really make sure that this. The, the two options are debated across the country and that there is actually uh, an agreement that, that this is a conclusion, a resolution for the country. So it could be a risk, but it depends on the way that we conduct ourselves and the risk of having um, more unrest is bigger if we actually Brexit. Okay. Let me take the question option choice, at best, at best, is likely due to a modest Remain majority. In such circumstances, will a Remain win only enrage the Brexiteers who will cite an establishment sticker and lead to demands for a third vote? My fear is this will be destructive to the country or to make it some sort of a laughing stock. Right. Tom Bray, third referendum. <laughs> Well, I, I just pick up perhaps on the first half of that, which is that clearly we do not want a modest Remain vote if there is a people's vote. And that, I think, is what we're all here for. Know. How can you guarantee that? Well, I can't, I can't guarantee that, but uh, what, what, that, that's why the time that we've got available, uh, which I would suggest is somewhere between now and probably uh, March or April uh, next year, in terms of when... Uh, when such a, a people's vote might take place, that we have to mobilise to make sure that we do fight 
a campaign that has some elements that are clearly missing from the campaign a couple of years ago, uh, for instance, some emotional uh, uh, angles to our campaign to make sure that we do not end up in a 53% or a 47% leave situation, because clearly that would be uh, a very, very bad scenario. So I think we have to we have to try and tap into the reasons why. Why am I angry about the fact that we are potentially going to leave the European Union? I'm angry because as a child, as a family, we went to live in France. We lived in France for 10 years. My dad was able to work there. My mum was able to work there. Uh, after that, my parents were able to go and live and work in Portugal, which they did. And my younger sister and her family live in Portugal now. I want those opportunities to be available, uh, available to my children. Uh, one is in uh, finishing her third year at uni, the other is just finishing his, his A-levels. Uh, he is studying German. I want him, if he chooses, to be able to go and live and work, and he certainly can do that in Germany at some point in the future. Uh, that cannot be guaranteed if we leave the European Union. He may be able to, but we simply don't know. So we've got to make sure that we fight a campaign that has an, an emotional angle to it, an emotional aspect, which was completely devoid, was completely absent uh, two years ago, because I'm afraid to say that uh, the stronger in campaign was monopolised by uh, David Cameron and George Osborne because they wanted to run a rerun of the Scottish referendum campaign where the focus was going to be on the economy. It was the same team that run the successful uh, Scottish referendum campaign who were brought in to run uh, the campaign for the stronger in, and it did not work. For very obvious reasons, why would a Labour voter who has, is equivocal about the European Union, why on earth would they want to vote for something that David Cameron was advocating? Uh, let me read the case out here. I mean, a second referendum and a vote that is largely in favour of Remain is going to be a disaster, isn't it? Uh, total disaster, yeah. An even more disastrous one would be for Leave to win again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I mean, just, I mean, I realise I'm in a minority, we've all been persuaded by the Italian man and all that, uh, but I, I, so I'm no good by just going on about referendums. We are where we are, and people demand them. The, the history of referendums is people who win them think they're terrific and decisive and show the public voice, and people who lose them try to find ways of getting, getting round them. Uh, and that, that's, that occurs in those countries which are lumbered with referendums. Uh, we, they're no part of our constitution, but unfortunately our political world has taken them on board. Uh, we only got away with it in the previous referendum on Europe uh, in the 1970s because the majority was so overwhelming. Uh, about two to one, I think, voted in Wilson's referendum, which he, he actually called for the same irresponsible reasons that Cameron called his, and very similar ones. But, but, but uh, we won so overwhelmingly that demands for another referendum and everything else sort of vanished for a bit. Uh, I don't think either side would do that in a second referendum here, though obviously I'd do my best to get a, 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 a Remain vote. But just don't think that winning the replay means that the Eurosceptics will go away and say, oh, the people's voice is different now. The, the Leavers had no intention of taking any notice of the referendum because they knew they were going to lose it. All the experts had read opinion polls, and all the experts knew that the public were going to vote Remain. Boris Johnson was shocked, as David Cameron was shocked. 
I think Boris is probably more shocked if I was really inside, because he isn't really a Brexiteer. He only joined it for opportunist reasons. Nigel Farage had gone to bed swearing with struggles and And that's what they would do again. And unless we get, and good luck on us all, a really overwhelming majority. And I won't go on, because I go on every time I answer a question. The difficulty is getting a serious vote. Such a complex, complicated question. I've always been in favour of our being in the European Union, because I think we're, our political voice is greater in this very difficult and dangerous modern world, because we're one of the big three in the European Union. When we're isolated, most of the world's leaders would not lift the phone if the British Prime Minister comes on because they're busy doing something else and tell him or her I'll ring back sometime. Uh, the fact we with Germany and France are amongst the leading and in foreign affairs quite often one of them definitely a leading economic policy more so uh, members of the European Union keeps us at the table just about as a block with the Russians and the Chinese and the Americans and the new powers. Uh, economically uh, that just being a member of the biggest and wealthiest international free trade bloc in the world is one of the key things that's enabled us overall to do so well for the last 40 years, a time during which our economy has been modernised beyond recognition, living standards have risen way beyond where they were and run properly. We stopped greedy bankers and incompetent regulators screwing up the financial system that, that's likely to continue on our own with, with just putting, to try and negotiate a reduction of trade barriers with New Zealand when we're erecting very formidable new trade barriers between ourselves and all our neighbours is faintly ridiculous. Now, we just heard the best definition of a single market, briefest and accurate, that I've ever heard. That, that, that would not get reported. If a press man was here, he wouldn't lift his pencil up. In a referendum campaign, that's boring. Modern politics is celebrity culture now. They want to know, is Boris being rude to Theresa? Is Theresa coming back? And, you know, and all the rest of it. And where's Jeremy on all this? And you have to cope with that. Make the simplest arguments possible. And if you have a second referendum, we've damn well got to win it. But the underlying problem is that Parliament has got, that that's what they're for, they're professional politicians, to get their heads around the detail, get it right, and then get thrown out by our masters, the people, at a general election if it's obvious we've made a mess of it. But the idea that anyone will cast a vote, because they think the European system is the best way of regulating the safety of medicines, and they have been alarmed by the idea we're leaving the European Medicines Agency. I've no doubt if I went national campaigning again, I might find one person interested in the subject. But I mean, <laughs> this room obviously knows all about the European Medicines Agency and understands why there's no, a problem with the supply chain. <laughs> uh, but, but this is naive. That's what Parliament is for. That's where you hold to account governments <laughs> making the choice okay. how to regulate those Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. All right. I wasn't what should be on the ballot for? Oh, well, this is so easy. <laughs> um, 
actually, it, the People's Vote campaign, as I say, published this uh, report about the routes to the People's Vote and also suggested uh, how that People's Vote would look. Um, uh, there's two uh, ways of, of uh, two, two options as, as the fork in the road goes with the deal. If the Prime Minister comes back with a deal, um, probably at the end of November or maybe into December, then the ballot paper should be, do you want that deal or do you want to remain? If, of course, she can't come back with a deal at all because it's broken down or wherever, are you content with no deal or do you want to remain? But that's, as, I think you've got to try and keep it as simple as possible on the ballot paper. That would be the way that I will uh, advocate this in Parliament. I just want to pick up, though, on this, on this question about uh, how, what will happen if there's a second referendum, is it the third referendum, are we going to be a laughing stock, all the rest of it. Look, I wish I could offer you a populist, uh, phantasmical uh, you know, offer that all is going to be well and we're all going to skip into the future with unicorns and rainbows everywhere. But guess what? Politics will not end uh, even if we have a second referendum, uh, it's going to be rough, it's going to be difficult. This is a battle that is going to go on for all of our lives, forever. Right? We've got to get used to this. This is, this is a fundamental issue of politics as it is today. And we will forever be having to make the case for either being an outward-looking uh, nation that engages openly in alliances that puts the well-being of citizens first, their health, the students, whether they have a chance to study and work abroad, the teachers, whether we're going to have enough money to pay for decent education, uh, the healthcare arrangements that we need where we learn from the rest of the world and bring that to the benefit of our, of our citizens, or are we going to take the approach of cutting ourselves off supposedly protecting ourselves from the rest of the world of uh, becoming an insular country and going down that particular route. That is never going to end as a political, as the, as the nature of politics today. And so my point really is politicians, all of us, have to get off our knees, those of us that believe in, having, in an open, progressive, uh, uh, evidence-based system that is not enamoured with this populist uh, nonsense. And we have to get up on these and say that we want to lead those alliances, lead in Europe. We want to reform it. Britain was at the heart, and has been at the heart of so many of the best bits of Europe. Stop apologising, grip this situation, and take our rightful place leading Europe and leading the world. This global rule-setting block uh, is not going to go away. We're either in it, shaping it, driving it, or we're going to be away from the table and taking rules and having to follow and play catch-up. This is the battle of our lives, and it is never going to end. Okay. Uh, we all like opinion polls as journalists. So, it's a very straightforward question. Put your hands up if you would support a second referendum. Right. I want to know what the question is. <laughs>
It was. If you support a second, refer second referendum, put your hand up. I don't know. How many of you would prefer parliamentarians to deal with the issue rather than a second vote? This is parliamentarians deal with it rather than hands up. Oh, right, okay, that's quite interesting. Right, there does seem to be a, a constituency here that would rather parliamentarians deal with them. Okay. The, 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 the question is very important. You know, the question can't be, do you want the government's deal or no deal? The option of staying in the EU or the option of going back and getting a better deal would happen at any sensible question whether you're putting it to Parliament or the what the question's going to be. Okay, well, to respond to the people who just said they'd rather the parliamentarians do it, I entirely understand that argument, but I'm afraid I just don't think that is a political reality. The only way forward from where we are now, you know, we've been asked about the, the, the risk of inflaming the right, we've been asked about the question about if it was a narrow result in favour of Remain this time. You know, would there be trouble? I think there really would be trouble. I've been talking about how people feel like Westminster is doing things to them. That's what's happened with fracking. I think if people felt, if Sunderland felt Westminster had done that to them, that's really not politically tenable. And I think one of the things we were um, discussing before we started about perhaps we'd be agreeing too much, but I think we found quite a bit to disagree on because while I want to agree on what the referendum question should be, and you know, it has to be a simple either the deal versus remain, or if there isn't a deal, no deal versus remain. But I want to continue to stand up for and celebrate referendums. Okay, I like to be the unpopular occasion. <laughs> um, but Eloise, I think, made reference to the Irish referendum on abortion, where the public showed they were far in advance of the politicians. They'd shifted far faster than anybody realised. I'll point you to the Scottish independence referendum. And if you go to Scotland now in any election, and I've just been hearing about a, a Nottingham by-election where you just had where there was a 12% turnout. In Scotland... All right. Uh, a very low turnout. Um, referendums can get people engaged and aware, and people are now actually far more informed about Europe than they were two years ago. And I've got a positive story to tell here, which is you asked about and you suggested it would inevitably be narrow. I don't believe the result will inevitably be narrow. What we have to do is get out there and not just campaign to scrape through, but campaign to inspire people. And the way we do that is not by saying we go back to 2016. This is not a going backwards. We have to offer people a different kind of world. And I disagree with Chris about saying, you know, Politics is going to continue like we are now, this fight's going to go on and on. Because I think where we are now in politics is we're coming up to the last dead days of neoliberalism, the last zombie days of neoliberalism. 40 years we've had a single form of politics dominating. And it's like we're now in the period just before the election of Margaret Thatcher, which is the last time politics changed in Britain. And so this is a time to really say to people, we want democracy, we want your voice, we want you to engage, and we want you to know. And we can have an informed public. You know, I've got a, a picture of what we could look like in three years' time. We've had the people's vote. In that people's vote, people have said, we want to take back control of Westminster, we want to take back control of our local communities. 
We want to make rich individuals and multinational companies pay their taxes. We've got out, we've voted, we now know our vote counts in every election like it does in a referendum. And if you go to Scotland, you'll find a society that is like that. And interestingly, Scotland, areas of Scotland that are demographically very like some of the strongest leave areas of Britain, they voted Remain. They understood where their real problems were because they were an informed, engaged public. So I want to offer a message of hope. We can win this by a large margin and we can transform politics while we do it. Okay, thank you, Right up there. Uh, I think your question is about extending the franchise to 16-year-olds, but your dates don't quite add up, so you just want to explain the significance of the 23rd of June, 1998. Is microphone behind? I'm sorry. I'm going to ask the panellists whether they agreed to write anybody born after the 23rd of June 1998 and not being given the same and will continue not to have the same in the future. Right, okay. So at the moment, if you're over 18, you get the vote. So you want to extend it to what, 16 year olds? Am I, is that, am I interpreting this right? Because that was an issue the last time around. I thought it was in Scotland. No, sorry. Right, okay. I'm not quite sure. Yes, in the, in the Scottish parliamentary election, you mean? And they referendum, they okay. referendum for 16, okay. 17. Uh, like extending the franchise, Eloise? I personally think that there's a big case for extending the franchise to 16 and 17 year olds. I do, however, feel that the political reality of where we are would lead people to potentially suggest that this is a change in the goalpost situation. So I, I would absolutely, and we have been at Best for Britain actually supporting Peter Kyle, but um, emotions, well, he was pushing this through Parliament, and our position is absolutely to support the extension of the franchise. I guess I'm just also pointing out the kind of political tension with that, that anything that seems to change drastically from a couple of years ago, um, although it is a different situation, a different reality, I think we need to be mindful of that. But um, it's absolutely crucial that not only we um, fight for that in case we get it, but really we look as well at the turnout from 2016, which was not good, and um, we need to make sure that young people, uh, we need to reverse some of the legislation that made it harder for families to register multiple people um, to, to be registered to vote. That was a, a terrible piece of legislation that actually disenfranchised a lot of people without them realising. We saw 1.4 million new people, many of them young people, not all, but many of them, sign up to vote in the 2017 election for the first time ever. So there's already those 1.4 million people that were valid to vote last year that didn't vote in 2016. So there's a real case for them as well. And uh, we should all, in our efforts, as we go around the country, trying to campaign for a people's vote for the, actually the option to stay in, we should also encourage young people everywhere to register to vote and to use their democratic voice. And while I've got the mic, I just want to 
advertise one of the things that we're doing at Best for Britain, which is a service for campaigners everywhere, whether you're People's Vote, whether you're European Movement, whichever group you're in. We've done a deep study, um, lots of data, and we've mapped the entire country and found which streets in the country there are most swing voters on. And if you sign up at wewantthefinalsay.com, then we will send you three leaflets and a map of where to go so that you can take your amazing work from your street stores to the, to the streets where we, people are persuadable. And there's more about that on the website, and it's a partnership with Hope Not Hate and other organisations. I'm going to put you on the spot there. Can, can you name this street in Skegness and Boston? <laughs> no. <laughs> Green Lane? <laughs> Green Lane? <laughs> okay. What? Just one question I have. If, if there's a second vote and the turnout isn't as big as it was for the first referendum, doesn't the result of a second referendum, regardless of how many young people take part in it, no longer legitimate? There's this argument that um, we're trying to rerun the referendum, or we're trying, or that it would be it wouldn't be legitimate if people make a different decision to what was made in 2016. But quite simply, as I mentioned before, it's not the same thing. If uh, I mean, you, if there was a member of the House of Lords that recently said uh, that he made a decision with his two aunts who wanted to go to the cinema, and they decided they made a decision they wanted to go to the cinema, and so he went out and looked at what was available on offer. And the two films that were available were uh, Reservoir Dogs and Texas Chainsaw Ma Massacre. <laughs> so he went, is he supposed to say, well, that's your decision, you're stuck with it? Or do you say, now you know what's on offer, what do you think? This isn't about repeating, this is about simply saying, all right, you said you wanted to leave, here's the outcome, what do you think? Um, and regarding young people, I mean, yeah, that's one of the reasons why we set up our future, our choice, because young people simply don't want Brexit. I mean, it, it's, so, it's so strong in terms of the voting in 2016, that by 2021, we will have a remain voting population in this country. Brexit will be directly against the will of the people before Brexit is even complete. And so, um, and so I mean, quite simply, young people, we need two things. We need stuff to be cheap, because we don't have any money, and we need, we need job options. Brexit makes things more expensive because we're increasing the barriers between us and our closest trade partners. And regarding jobs, it makes the UK a less attractive place to create those jobs. And the jobs that leave because of Brexit, we want to be able to follow them. Brexit is bad for young people. It's that simple. And regarding whether or not um, this debate will go on forever, again, I've got to disagree with you, Chris, sorry. Um, I don't want this debate to go on forever. I've been arguing about Brexit for the past two years. I want it done. <laughs> um, and sure. quite simply, we have real issues in this country that have to be addressed. It's no surprise that the areas most strongly for Brexit are the most deprived areas in the country. That needs to be fixed. We have a very London-centric country where the investment, the opportunities go to London, go to the big cities, and those places voting get voted for Brexit get left behind. But to do that, we need time, resources, money. And right now, the government, all they're doing is Brexit, and that's all they'll be doing for the next 30 years if Brexit goes ahead. But what we actually need is actual hope. Imagine if all the resources that are being spent on Brexit went into fixing the problems led people to vote for Brexit in the first place. Right now, they are, they are so Taken on 7,000 civil servants to deal with Brexit, planned for 9,000 more, 300 to deal with, with the border issues. Not doctors, not nurses, not teachers, civil servants to deal with the Brexit claim that their own experts say harms the country. We need to have investment in those areas, rebalance the country, and that will actually make us more united as a country. 
Um, so yeah, that's what I was saying. I'm acutely aware of that. Many people from the audience, so let's try and spread that out. If you can say your, your, your name and where you're from. Yes, yeah, so my name is Joyce Lama, I'm an EU citizen, so I'm a Dutch citizen. Um, ironically enough, I'm an A level teacher in politics. <laughs> um, so, very ironically, I've seen uh, an increase of young people being engaged in politics, which is absolutely fantastic. And at the moment, there's only one student in my class who is, uh, you know, Brexit there. The rest are all remain, and those strong people are engaged, and they know, they understand the single market, funny enough, the customs union, and they can have those discussions in class. I've seen a massive increase, which is fantastic. But when we talked about the people's vote last week, there was someone who said, yeah, we've had this whole lesson about democracy, and democracy is important, value, but how democratic would it be if we disregard those who voted to leave the EU, how happy will they be if we have that second referendum? Will they then go out and campaign for them? So I can see your point. So unfortunately, I couldn't give them a good response. So my question to you is how to sell that the people's vote would be a democratic thing to do? Okay, thank you very much. Is Dave Dream here? Dave Dream? Right, because Dave's question. Is, is that one entirely? Now, anyone else who doesn't agree with the kind of broad consensus we've got on this panel? Right. Oh, good, just got a few. Thank goodness. Hi, David Dream, I'm actually from the Online Bruges group. So, the uh, uh, criticism of the people's vote has been that there's already been the people's vote, which is backed by 17.4 billion voters. The largest democratic mandate the nation has ever given to anything. The decision to leave the EU has been made, and any second vote should solve it beyond the terms of the UK's departure. How would the panel respond to the people's vote is an attempt to ignore the referendum result and frustrate both people? Okay, I'm going to take um, somebody up here, there, i take, take this con contributor here. Sorry, it's right in the middle. This, this lady here, just stand up for a second, that's it. Pass it. And then, if I might can come down here, if I can take short contributions, we're into the final half hour. Um, so this might be the last opportunity to hear from all six. So tell us your name, where are you from? Government can deliver a referendum and force the government 
this government from actually, uh, you know, force the government in the way by voting against any deal that they come back with, and it's clear to me that they're not going to come back with anything but uh, a very bad deal, and therefore, really, given the things involved and everything else, I can't see in a lot of hands to answer that Labour only way you can get everything. Okay, let's take the contributor up here, and I'll take one more, and then we'll come to the panel. Is it on? Yeah. Uh, this might be a little complicated. Keep it simple and short. The one thing that we're all missing is can't we just go back and renegotiate a slightly different kind of membership? We talked about this before the referendum. Boris Johnson wrote an article where he implied it would be possible if the vote was tied. <laughs> There's a uh, possibility we could get more wiggle room on freedom of movement from Berlin to Paris. They would be in a position now where they would give us something like that. It would be a good why it wouldn't necessarily break the four freedoms uh, mantra that they have. And if we do that, we're going to have a second vote, we're going to need to give them for the we're going to leave. Um, we just need a new kind of uh, opt out. We've got, got that new style of membership, yes? <coughs> Tell us your name, where are you from? Hello? Yeah. Hello? Hi, I'm Caroline from Newcastle. So um, I think a lot of times people use the European government as an escape, when really it's actually the Tory government that's destroyed half the Northeast. Sunderland vote for you because they're sick of the Westminster government leaving them behind. Like Redcar in Middlesbrough has been absolutely destroyed because of just globalisation in general, not even the European Union. Um, it's just sort of like people are now just sick of this. They just want to get an answer from the people that we elect in order to give us these answers. The average person isn't taught politics. No one's taught politics from age 16. What you learn is voluntary. What you learn is in the media. It's like people are just sick of voting for people and then the vote getting passed back on the world. It's like you decide, even though we chose you to decide for us. It's just, yeah, just get Can we negotiate a brand new style of membership for the EU? Um, well, I, I think unfortunately that's something that we could and should have tried to do uh, a number of years ago. I think what if we uh, do uh, secure a people's vote and if we, if we win it, then I hope that the UK will play a leading role in seeking that reform within the European Union uh, as, uh, as part of our ongoing membership to the European Union. Uh, just to pick up on a, a, couple, a couple of the other points, I think one thing that we should very definitely do is that the government have allocated three billion pounds to pay for things that are needed to be done in relation to Brexit. I would want us instead to, to spend that three billion pounds investing in the areas of greatest need, the areas that voted for Brexit, because they're not they're, that, that money is being spent in the South East recruiting customs officers. Uh, to, to check uh, vehicles coming in and so on. So that money should instead be spent uh, on, uh, on the areas that, that voted for, for Brexit. And I think we should, uh, the, the government's assessments of all the different models that we could possibly have, and I don't think there's any deal that is as good as the ones that we've got currently within the European Union, all of them lead to a reduction in our GDP. I think we should say, well actually, Rather than taking that hit, we're going to use that money that we would lose uh, in terms of Brexit as a Brexit dividend to spend again in the areas of greatest need. 
And just finally, I'm afraid I can't not pick up on the fact of whether Jeremy Corbyn is going to come to our, uh, you know, on his white charger to save us. Well, if there are two people who I blame for the position we're now in, it's David Cameron and Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, with any degree of certainty, where the Labour Party stood on this position, I'm absolutely certain the outcome would be different, but he didn't. So, I'm afraid I don't think he's going to come to that. I'm afraid what I think can happen, and is happening, is that there is very, very active cross-party working across all parties. You see it on the panel here. The SNP as well, Caroline Lucas from the Greens, that is very actively ongoing every day of the week, planning, uh, some might say plotting, around different amendments to, to ensure that cross-party we can perhaps force the Prime Minister's hand and get her to agree that the only way out for her is through any people's vote. Okay, thank you, John. What sort of member should we be of the European Union? Yeah, people often say, well, <coughs> how come Cameron wasn't able to negotiate a, a better deal um, back in 2016? And it's because, well, we had Nigel Farage, it's what, again, it's one of the reasons why I got involved. Nigel Farage was telling us that the EU forces us to let migrants come here, live off benefits, and hook up the NHS. An unlimited number, there's no restrictions at all, completely open borders. Turns out that was a complete lie, a lie which I got to admit to live on LBC. Because in fact, under EU rules, you cannot come to this country without a job unless you have enough money not to become a burden on a welfare state and have comprehensive medical insurance. So that was a complete lie. Now, not only are citizens from other EU countries net contributors to our economy and our public services because they make up 5% of our population, yet they make up 10% of our doctors, but the, U but the UK government chose not to enforce the restrictions that are available under EU law. Now, one of the reasons why I got involved, because I knew that David Cameron was never going to say, I hear your concerns about immigration. The reason you have those concerns is because I haven't been doing my job. <laughs> When he then went to the EU to say, give us more controls over immigration, what do you think they're going to say to him? You're not using the ones you already have. <laughs> so that's, 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 why, that's why I got involved. Um, as for um, uh, having a different messaging regarding um, uh, not being part of clear anymore, we have been, our future choice, we've been touring the country asking people who voted to leave, what did they want from Brexit? They wanted three things. More control over their, over the, over their laws, their country, a better NHS, and to be better off. More control? No. We're going to end up copying the rules of the EU because it's always going to be an economic interest to have as little barriers as possible between us and the rest of Europe. So um, that means we're going to have less control. And we have 73 of the of members of the European Parliament that gives us 10% of its voting weight, despite being one of 28 countries. We are a dominant force and we are giving up that control. They wanted a better NHS. Right now, the British Medical Association, the Royal College of Nurses, the Royal College of Midwives, all saying Brexit is bad. These are your doctors. Take their advice. Um, so Brexit, so if you, if you genuinely care about the NHS, Brexit's bad. So we're listening to people, what people actually wanted. They wanted things to get better. And again, those areas that, are, that have been left behind, they need actual investment in those areas. Imagine if we invested in creating a, 
um, in railways and transport infrastructure to create a thriving northern economy, a thriving interconnected Wales. That is what's necessary for this country so it can actually be as functional and as productive. I mean, take Germany. Their industry is not in Berlin. It's spread across the country so that the potential that exists, exists across, the, across the entire country are actually used. Um, and the third thing, what is it? I'm oh, sorry, I'm writing. Thwart right. um, uh, the will of the people. Yeah, the idea that it's und undemocratic. I keep hearing this. The will of the people cannot be thwarted by a vote of the people because the people cannot undermine their own will. If we, if we vote against... <laughs> It is, it is that simple. I can, I can vote that I, I want to go in that direction, but if I find out that every single road that leads there is on fire, it is not my will to have to burn alive. It's that simple. But what sort of member should we be of the European Union after all this? Um. There's a saying that I often hear from continental Europeans, which is that well, we've always thought that Britain was basically had one foot in the European Union and one foot out. We were always a very obstructive, difficult member. Um, and I think you know, whatever happens, unless we have a totally disastrous crash out no deal, uh, there's an argument for saying that what's going to happen is we have the hokey pokey, we swap feet. But I think it's really important to pick up what Femi said, that we've been lied to, we've been misgoverned by Westminster. And the example of immigration is, I think, now quite well known. There's also the example of fisheries. Fishermen were told this one single foreign vote that's, that's got lots and lots of Britain's quota. <coughs> that was because that vote was given that quota by Westminster. The Common Agricultural Policy, Michael Gove, is running around saying, oh, well, we're going to have a new rule, and you know, he's, he's really trying to, you know, he's bidding to be Prime Minister. He's saying, you know, we're going to cap the amount of money so the rich won't get so much Common Agricultural payment money. We always could have done that. It was a Westminster decision, not an EU decision. But I think what we have to do is coming to Tessa's question here in the middle, you know, I think I've already addressed this in a way that I, I am concerned about the tone of tonight because we've heard a lot about economics, we've heard a lot about oh, what the experts say about what's going to happen at Dover. We have to talk a lot more about a people's Europe where we collectively are far more powerful joined together with the people of Europe fighting for what we want. Things like safe food, things like decent condition for workers, we can work together in that far more effectively in the EU than we can on our own. And I just want to pick up the question about the U-turn. Um, I think, again, Femi, you did that very well, but you know, I've made my reference to the driving north from Sheffield. Politicians U-turn all the right time. People have to have that right too. And I think some of the union leaders have expressed this very well. When union leaders go into negotiation for their members over a new pay deal, new terms and conditions, they don't just do the negotiation and say, right, that's it. They take the deal back to the members to decide if that's what they want. That's the way things work. That's democracy. 
So I would urge anyone, and you know, you'll see me having this debate on Twitter at least three times a day, don't be defensive, don't feel like you're on the back foot. You are the democratic one. You are saying go to the people, let the people decide. Because it's very clear that we don't have in Westminster any kind of democracy that's capable of deciding for us. So I'd urge you to think about your vote, that everyone who voted and said Parliament should decide. We don't have a democratic parliament that can decide. Only the people is the only option. Um, because isn't that one of the problems that the UK's membership of the EU has been, is that we've been half in, half yeah, out. We I didn't sign up to Schengen, we didn't sign up to the single currency. Yeah, I mean, that's quite important. I mean, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm standing here as the jaded veteran all here, surrounded, and I show you, well, there's nobody here more pro British membership of the European Union than me. I've believed in all my adult life, got very actively involved with in it uh, quite a lot of times. Um, and I've not, uh, I voted against Article 50. I did carry my being invoked. It was absurd on the strength of a referendum, in my view, uh, to invoke it before we had any idea what it was we were going to negotiate. It was unbelievably idiotic. But the entire House of Commons, swept along by the last <coughs> referendum, gave an overwhelming majority in favour of Article 50. But there, there we are. The, the big question as well, I'd love to go, and I won't, I promise you, 10 seconds if I can manage it. The, the, this, the bigger problem has been touched on is why are the democratic establishment and the politicians and the elites and all the rest of it being rejected in every Western democracy? I mean, Brexit's our Donald Trump. Uh, Brexit's our uh, Marine Le Pen. Brexit's our uh, equivalent of this weird anarchist government in Italy. Because uh, so many people feel disillusioned. They feel left, but they feel technological change, globalisation, the modern world. It suits the people in this room who are pretty young, well educated, lucky to be in a good job, going on and on and on and on. And people feel left behind, baffled by it. The vote against us was nothing to do with Europe at the referendum. Hardly anybody was interested in Europe. The public have never been interested in Europe, and the public generally don't understand it very well, and no, they don't. Uh, it was a collection of shy Conservatives who thought the country had changed too much, it was much better in the old days, why we don't go about running things ourselves, and largely ageing white working class people who thought all these foreigners are to blame, they've come here and taken our jobs, Brussels stops us controlling our borders, we can send the Muslims back, and we can reopen the foundry. Uh, and I'm now being very, very unkind. There are lots of people on both sides with sensible views. There is a political public of which we're part. But what gave them this tiny majority was their protest votes outnumbered the protest votes against other things on our side. So I just guard against the sweep. It does me good to be in such a pro-European audience. It's been years since I surrounded We're all rushing along, putting all our eggs in the basket of another blasted referendum. And if you must, I'll be with you. I'm not confident we'll win. I'm not confident the outcome of that will settle it. And I actually, once you start talking about what kind of Europe, to answer your question, 
We obviously still don't know quite what it is we're saying to people we're going to do after it. It's just so we need to get back to common sense politics occasionally. And very, very briefly, on our membership of Europe, we opt out of so many things. It's, it's always been a problem. Uh, and the reason that I don't think, if I was a, a continental politician, I wouldn't accept the Chequers deal. In fact, I'd be quite cautious about the, doing anything rather than carry on as we were, because the, the, here are the British coming back wanting to rewrite half the EU, uh, take the benefits, get out of the obligations, and start you know, trying to cheer up the Daily Telegraph by altering bits. Uh, and and this, this is not... I think the Europeans are getting fed up with this. They feel they never could understand the Anglo-Saxons. We've gone completely dotty now. Uh, and they're waiting to see what happens, uh, frankly. But they're not going to alter the nature of the single market for us, particularly as it was Thatcher's government who sold them the idea in the first place. They're not going to alter the customs union just for us. They're not going to abandon the four freedoms. They're not, we, we, we could run a tighter version. We, we ran one of the sloppier versions of freedom of movement to people beforehand. But we've got to explain to people that somebody already has freedom of movement benefits us, the only ethnic group in the country who make a positive economic benefit contribution to our economy are e other EU nationals, even British nations. Then I start Richard, you go say, well that bit's all wrong, so we'll improve it. Of course it needs improvement, it is too bureaucratic a Brussels thing. Most people when they say they want reforms actually don't really know what they want and start talking drivel once they go into the details of what they're trying to negotiate. And it's the benefits that we have achieved, most importantly, I wouldn't give 16 year olds the vote, but getting people of my generation to realise it's their children's well-being and their grandchildren's well-being. Yeah, to the colleague from Left Against Brexit, if anybody can change Corbyn's mind, it's groups like yours, it's so important what you do, and it's so important that every single piece of the political puzzle that feels that we should be in the EU is fighting and talking to their interlocutors in Parliament, because we won't do it from one single political starting point. So thank you for what you do and don't give up. And to the point about having a different narrative and not just having Project Fear and that great question, you're right, I think we, we have to, there's been a shyness about talking about the benefits of the EU. A lot of people are kind of scared of it, like, oh, we're going to turn people, you know, scare people away. We have to get to the point where we're more bold and more confident in doing that. We've developed this resource that we hope is helpful and full of websites tonight. It's called myeu.uk. You can put in your postcode. And like, for example, in Hull, where I grew up, uh, the Freedom Festival, which is amazing. It's like a celebration of William Wilberforce and all the diversity um, that you know, comes from the fact that we abolished slavery eventually and all the things that people are proud of in Hull. Go visit City of Culture. It's great. Um, the one and a half million quid from the EU is the Freedom Festival, which is really popular in Hull. I bet a lot of people don't know that. There's also quite a lot for fish processing and things like that. So that's the local trade. Um, but look that up and start to sell those local stories and know that actually Europe has redistributed a lot of wealth 
to the regions that otherwise wouldn't have anything from um, potentially from Westminster. Well, I know there are some people in this audience that were involved in Nottingham bid for European City Culture, which, of course, was one of the first casualties of this whole exercise. Chris Lester. So, just to go through some of the, some of the particular questions. I mean, look, Ken, I'm not especially enamoured at the idea of another referendum, but uh, in the predicament that we're in, um, when so many people, including myself, feel that we've gone down the cul-de-sac, you do have to recognise that, in a way, the only way for the people uh, to overrule their own initial judgment would be for the people to do it themselves. And that is, that is the reason why, I think, inexorably, so many of us have been driven to this notion of a, of a uh, people's vote. Um, it's a necessity um, in a very, very difficult situation. Um, and if I've sounded slightly uber-realistic and not necessarily the... Um, uh, sunlit uplands, uh, Natalie, that you might have talked about before, it's because I, I, I you know, really do feel we are in the shtick here, and uh, we have, um, we have a, a, a long way uh, to go. But the thing about uh, democracy, you know, it isn't a static thing. It isn't a snapshot in time that the people then have to say, oh, well, there was an election in 1968, or, uh, you know, even in... Um, uh, 2015 or 2017, where we have to stick with that forever. You know, as a Labour MP, if the Conservative government have got elected uh, and they get a majority in Parliament, do I just sit back and say, oh, no, 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 that's fine. You put in through all of the things you want to do. I won't vote against any of those things, even if they were in your manifesto. No, I continue to make the case. I continue to make the arguments. It's a values-based parliamentary democratic system and I will continue to make that until I persuade people to change their minds and do something different. For example, this referendum was in 2016. Since when I have been elected as a member of parliament in 2017. My electors know and knew very well where I stood on this particular issue. So why should a, a vote that took place in 2016 overrule my more recent mandate as a member of parliament in 2017. This is complicated stuff, okay? There is no... Different people will take different views on how democracy happened, but you have to realise it's a dynamic uh, character. And if the public... Uh, if, if parliament wants to put this question back to the public, it has the right to do so. And if the public wish to do something else, to think again, um, having in, in the full knowledge of what, of what they uh, can see the consequences, they have that right to do it. I, I think that's absolutely clear. The second question, of course, is the nature of the campaign. Is it project fear? Is it too economic? I, I, you know, I do accept that we have to broaden out beyond the economics. My God, the one thing that wasn't talked about in the referendum was the fact that you know, in the, so much blood was spilled in the Second World War. Um, people, hundreds of thousands of people died, and the people that came out of the Second World War put their put their shoulder to, you know, to the wheel and uh, created a peaceful uh, settlement which was about shared governance across a continent that has actually managed in an amazing way to keep us safe and in a peaceful world for such a prolonged period. And here we are because popular memory is short, because we're getting older, people under a certain age can't remember some of these things. We're about to potentially put that very, very delicate, precious thing in the bin, 
absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, no, no. And so uh, there are many, many reasons beyond the economic reasons which we take for granted and which we shouldn't take for granted. But all I would say is, you know, to students and particularly to the young people, uh, and I'll try and be positive about it, what are your ambitions for the future? Let's, let's be really... You know, down to the self-interest of you as an individual. Do you want to be a, to work in the public services? Well, we need to find a way of paying you to do that. Yeah, you know, do you want to work in science or technology? Well, you might want the ability to move and live and work in other countries. Do you want the ability to do that? There are fantastic things that you can do by being part of a block of 500 million people. And that is a massive beneficial, positive, progressive thing that we should be offering to the people and not apologising about it any longer. Okay. First of all, can we give a loud round of applause for the students from Bilbra College who have helped all the time?